Hey, everyone, and welcome to episode 202 of the Take Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Medicine with Heart, an interview with Dr. Diane Mueller. My name is Richard Johannesson. And I'm Matt Sabatello. Matt, Dr. Diane Mueller is this dynamic naturopathic doctor from Colorado who was inspired to turn to medicine after beginning her career in finance because she had a personal Lyme disease journey and her sister was diagnosed with Lyme disease during her childhood. If you're looking for a podcast interview that goes into a deep dive about all things Lyme, then this is the interview for you. Dr. Mueller goes into a wide variety of treatment protocols, how to detox properly, and more importantly, how to minimize herxing while effectively treating Lyme. Dr. Mueller also talked about the importance of mental health and the impact that mental health has on your ability to heal physically. And she taught this in a way that no one else has taught us to us before. She also gave us some really powerful insight into the HPA axis and the impact that that has on our healing. So Matt, without further ado, I'm really excited to introduce Medicine with Heart and Dr. Diane Mueller to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Dr. Mueller, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Rich. So happy to be here. Oh, we're really happy to have you as well. And there are just so many different topics that we're going to need to get into with you, Dr. Mueller. It's beyond uh, probably the time that we have, but as generous as you're willing to be with us in our audience, we are going to uh, keep you on as long as we can. So let's first talk about where you live. I live currently in the Colorado area in a town called Morrison in the lovely hills just outside of Denver. So talk to us about what you do, Dr. Mueller, meaning what type of work do you do and what is the name of your practice? So the name of my practice is Medicine with Heart, and the practice is, is really functional medicine in general. One of the things I have found, we work with a lot of Lyme disease, a lot of mold illness, about three quarters of our patient population do have these diseases, although many of them do not know they have these diseases when they first come and see us. And one of the reasons for using functional medicine for Lyme and mold that we have found is that Lyme and mold are really not a disease just of infection or detoxification. It's really about in treating these diseases. It's really about the impact that these diseases have on our entire bodies, you know, and on our nervous system, on our adrenal glands, on our thyroid, on our gut, on our cardiovascular system. So we really work from the functional perspective in the Lyme community to both eradicate or at least put into dormancy the infection, but also to look organ and gland system by system to see where all the imbalances are in the body to really bring the body back to health. Now, as a Lyme geek, you have me really excited already, but I am going to ask you to pause for one minute and let's walk back to your childhood. Where did you grow up? I grew up in the DC area. So I grew up on the East coast, definitely had that classic Lyme type of thing of spending a lot of time in the Appalachian mountains. We did a lot of camping as a kid. And so I could have, my suspicion is I might've gotten Lyme back in those days. My sister had Lyme back in, I believe she was diagnosed in about 1990, but I did not have any diagnosis of Lyme myself back in the days, those days, despite growing in that Lyme endemic area. All right, so let's talk about first your educational experience during your childhood in the DC area. Where'd you go to school and what was your educational experience like? My, I went to school, I did um, private school, so my parents were really into that. And I was at a school called Bishop O'Connell in high school. And I did that till I was 16. When I was 16, we actually moved cross country from the DC area to Kansas City area. 
And so I had a interruption between my sophomore and junior year of high school and went to a different um, high school when I got to the Kansas City area. I understand you were also an athlete during your childhood. I love, I think it was a, initially a way I connected with my father. So my dad is a very, very sports driven man and had four girls. I have three sisters. And so I think initially my drive for athletics was just finding, trying to find like a common ground to really connect to my dad, which was beautiful and definitely led to a lot of closeness there between him and I. But it also really threw me into the world of athletics at a very young age, anything from baseball to swimming to basketball. I did a little soccer, a lot of running. And it was a huge, huge part of my day. Oftentimes, you know, doing some sort of athletics anywhere between two and four hours on any given day. So a huge part of like who I was. So now let's pause there for a second and first talk about your formal education. Yeah. As part of your formal education, either in science classes or health classes or any other part of your formal education, did you learn anything about ticks and tick diseases? Oh man, I don't even know at that age that I, I mean, I think I knew what a tick was. I didn't know what a tick was because I knew that they were, they existed. But as far as like anything, no, nothing formal education. The only reason I even knew about Lyme disease was because my mom had read some sort of article in some, I don't even remember what magazine or paper. It was just a tiny little article. And when my sister got Lyme, she actually developed the classic bullseye rash. And the way my mom tells the story back then in the um, early 90s was she had to go to doctor after doctor. She said she went to a, a whole handful of doctors before she could even get somebody to believe that Lyme was existed. And it was just happenstance for you know some article she read. So um, the only reason I knew about that was purely just because my sister had gone through it and my mom fought for my sister so much eventually found a doctor that did believe, you know, did believe that. And and my sister did get treated back then. Although I still wonder if she has some sort of post Lyme syndrome stuff that I've talked to her about. And then as far as me, I I learned nothing in, in any sort of education at that age about Lyme. So let's talk about your athletic experience. You're, you played Mm -hmm. a number of outdoor sports. And of course, part Mm -hmm. of athletics is maintaining your body and keeping yourself healthy so that you can perform. Did you learn anything about protecting yourself from ticks and tick diseases as part of keeping your body healthy so that you can perform in your athletic um, activities? No, not at all. And, you know, cross country wise, we were traveling, we were doing a lot of trail running, you know, sometimes running half marathons through the woods. So there was a lot of time where I could have been exposed and, had no, no training. And even, even growing up in the DC area before I moved to Kansas, when we were in a more Lyme endemic area, um, that was absolutely never mentioned to me in any sort of my training. So how old are you when your sister uh, began to suffer from her Lyme disease symptoms? About 10, if I, if I remember somewhere in that age range. Okay. So you're a little girl and you hear about your sister getting sick. Was she an older or a younger sister? Younger sister. And do you recall anything about her rash or anything about how she, you know, how she looked or how she, her symptoms developed? 
Not really. I just, the thing I really remember the most is the frustration of my mom at that, you know, that time of not like feeling very strongly, like something was wrong. And I almost remember more the emotional um, impact of watching my mom have to fight to have a doctor take her seriously, that there was something actually going on. Now, before we get to the impact that that had on you professionally, because clearly it has, let's talk about what impact it had on you, the way your parents parented you, right? They have a, they have a little girl, she's sick, they're struggling to get her diagnosed, they finally discover that she has a tick disease, did they parent you any differently, meaning were they giving you information that you were able to use to prevent yourself from getting sick from Lyme disease? Time, no, at that time, I think it was just more of an emotional awareness around having to fight for, you know, for what's going on and, you know, feeling a huge sense at that age of, you know, trust in my parents that they had, you know, our back. So I, I believe it impacted me that way. And then as far as anything that was more related to Lyme, more of the impact came many, many years later when I was sick and I could kind of look at this in a more holistic, long-term perspective and, and really see like that this, that this problem with Lyme disease and not being taken seriously and having to fight for a diagnosis and having to be fight for medical professionals to take one seriously, that this is a fight that's been going on for a very, very, very long time. So that's more the impact is really seeing how long we've been struggling in wellness as, you know, as humans to be taken seriously about, about the impacts of Lyme disease on our health. Well, let's again, pause for a second and talk about the young Diane who was 10 years old and then ultimately, you know, her sister being sick. Did your parents, for example, recommend that you go through a process of grooming yourself where you're checking yourself every single day? Were they giving you bug spray to wear before you went out, you know, participating in your athletic activities? Were there any preventive measures that your parents were prompted to use after they found themselves on the front lines of the Lyme disease wars? We definitely used some bug spray. I think my parents were even a little bit worried about DEET in those days. And so there was, you know, there's that catch 22 with some of the more potent bug sprays out there. But as far as like checking for ticks, yeah, that was something that was really, really drilled into me um, from, a, you know, from that age is like, first thing you do when you get out, get in from being outside, wash a shower and we're always taught to like both put our hands through our hair, our scalp and feel, use a brush against our scalp really well and, and feel for any abnormalities in the brush, you know, check our body. So that was de that part was definitely drilled into me from that age. So give me some more details on the kinds of tick checks were you doing? Were you only doing it after you were out in the woods somewhere or was it something that you did every single day, either as you got out of bed or you went into the shower or something like that? Uh, the way I was... I was trained was really in only doing it when you're outside out in the woods, but making sure that it's something that was like prioritized, not like, Hey, you're out in the woods. Like when you get to it, get to it. Like this is an important thing to do upon coming back in the house, you know, check yourself for ticks right away. So now tell me about what your goals were for yourself as you're going through your childhood first in DC and then in Kansas. My, my goals, like childhood wise, I was just like any child, like trying to make my way, trying to self-develop, trying to figure out who I was in the world, um, how to make a living. I was definitely not aware of 
many of the options with medicine. I, I did fall in love with science um, at a pretty, pretty young age, but I also fell in love with math and finance. So was very, was from a, what my goals were. I really wanted to perform athletically. I really was into academia. So I had a lot of goals around making sure I got straight A's and really pushed myself academically hard. Um, so those were kind of my goals, but as far as anything that was really in medicine, that part had not say unveiled itself yet. So how did your sister's health develop from that early stage in your life until the time that you went to college? She was treated, she was treated with Doxy right away. Um, as soon as my mom did find that doctor that would prescribe it and her health. I mean, luckily she was really, really healthy for many years. Um, she has, she does have some things going on that I had, don't have permission to share. Um, but she does have some things going on now that sometimes I do wonder, and I've talked to her about if they are, you know, tick-borne, um, possibly sequelae, but she definitely did not develop any of the classic things that we see from Lyme disease, such as, you know, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia and, and headaches and pain and all these neurological things that we classics classically see. She, she was able to avoid those. Okay. So, so yeah. her health did not have an impact on your development during your childhood. She had the bad experience with, with uh, having the bullseye rash, had the bad experience of finding a doctor who would validate her experience, but did find a doctor because your mother was aggressive and she had a good experience that didn't affect you at all. Yeah. I mean, the only way it really affected me, like I said, was more along the lines of like having to fight to be taken seriously and right. how long we've been really fighting to bring awareness about Lyme disease. Like this is this fight. And you know, what, what your guys are talking about on tick Boot Camp, this is like not new, you know, this fight has been going on for decades. And so it's more awareness and more just brought the awareness around the seriousness of this fight that we're fighting to get taken seriously and how long, how long that's been impacting humanity. So talk about where the young athlete, young driven student went to college and what were your goals when you went to college? So originally I went to school not knowing what I was going to do in the world and um, kind of motivated in part by familial influence. I ended up getting a finance degree and got my series six and ended up selling things like mutual funds and variable life insurance. And that was like my first thing. But one of the things that happened in college, so I joined the collegiate, the national handball team. And we had a really cool handball team. We were national champions. We traveled all over. It was a really, really very fun sport. And I believe it was my junior year that I ended up having to quit the team because I developed, I started developing such chronic bursitis where the bursa of the joint for me, it was my elbows in particular, it was my left elbow. And um, the bursa kept swelling up so much that they actually had to do surgery on, you know, on my arm because of that and shave down the bone and drain the fluid and all of that. And I wasn't able to play again because anytime I would start playing, it would just come back. So I believe there was, there was a couple of things growing up in my childhood, digestive problems, really, really chronic digestive problems that I believe, you know, looking back 
could have, and knowing what I know about Lyme and the influence on the vagal nerve and the impact on the digestive tract, I believe that I, some of those symptoms from Lyme started showing up in my childhood, but this whole um, needing to quit the sport that I love so much and that I was having a lot of fun and um, success with and that sort of thing and needing to quit that because of the surgery um, and because of the potential of Lyme, that's when I feel like Lyme actually started really, it's like the first most impactful thing was like, oh, I, I can't actually do what I want to do. And what I've had that desire to do because of something that's happening to my body that at that point was just completely unknown to me. I didn't understand what was happening yet. So Dr. Milo, talk to us about how your family responded to the symptoms that you've now described to us during your childhood, and then mm -hmm. how you responded to the symptoms that were developing when you were in college that resulted in you leaving the athletic arena. Meaning, did you go to see doctors and what did the doctors diagnose you with during this window of time where you were clearly dealing with classic Lyme disease symptoms? Yeah, I mean, at that time, digestive wise, I got diagnosed with IBS, did, you know, a lot of standard workup. And I was, you know, to kind of ground how severe the IBS was, I was sometimes going up to two weeks without having a bowel movement and, you know, things that are like, like coffee enemas and laxatives and the strongest coffee imaginable, like all of these over the counter types of things nothing would, you know, people would be like, oh, just do a coffee enema or oh, just take a laxative. Like a laxative would not even make me go. It was so severe. Um, and so that was one of the big things that I was starting to see. And then, so I got that diagnosis, the IBS. And then the second diagnosis really was just like the bursitis. Um, I had a chronic fatigue label thrown on at that point. And, and that was really it. It was really one of the, the things that so many people hear. It's like, well, let's just throw a couple of labels on you and not really address the why. So there was, and at that point I hadn't started studying medicine yet. And I didn't know anything about root cause. And I didn't know anything about, you know, really the, all the symptoms that Lyme could, could create. So at that point, there was just a huge amount of honestly, like acceptance around like, okay, this is, this is something that I have to live with. And it was also a little easier to accept at that time. I wasn't motivated, I think, to start investigating yet because the symptoms, while they were effective, uh, they, they, they were impactful. That's the right word. They were impacting me, but I was still living a fairly, you know, normal life. It wasn't at a level yet where it's like, okay, I can't do my sport but I could still participate in other athletics. It hadn't shut me down athletically yet. I was still participating in school. I was still having a social life. So it wasn't, um, there wasn't a huge trigger yet to say, hey, there's gotta be another way. So now let's talk about the bowel paralysis, which is what you were suffering from. It wasn't really just mm -hmm. IBS. And, I, and there is some, some very recent research that is connecting bowel paralysis to, uh, to Lyme disease. Um, when you were treating with your doctors for the bowel paralysis, um, was there ever an inkling that that was perhaps the result of a tick disease? Oh, hundred percent. No, like never, never talked about, never asked about, I never had anybody even ask me if I'd ever been bitten by a tick or like literally was not on the radar. 
Now, when you are giving your family history to these doctors or your parents are giving your family history to the doctors, did anyone ever talk to your doctors about your sister having been suffering from childhood Lyme disease? Nope, nope, not on the radar at all. So um, and one of the things I'm sure as a doctor, you yourself are aggressive about making inquiries about not only the patient, but the patient's family and family history, because we, your, your doctor certainly could have had clues about what you are suffering from during your childhood and during your youth, had they even inquired about whether or not your sister had any diseases that may have given them insight into what you were dealing with. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's always good to know family history, and that can trigger us. It's also good to know, you know, place of origin, um, as far as where people grew up, although, you know, living in Colorado, there's, you know, there's Lyme everywhere. But that being said, there are places where there's higher amounts of Lyme. So while while I believe and what I've seen is that people get, can get Lyme all over the world, you know, the East Coast is named, you know, Lyme is named after the place it was found because there's high amounts of it there. And I do think that some level of insight around, oh, there's more of a tendency maybe to have this might have might have offered a clue. I don't think we should be ruling out whether or not somebody is Lyme based upon where they grew up, of course. But it could have offered another clue around, especially at that time when we didn't realize that Lyme was everywhere, that that might have been something to look into. So talk to us about what caused you to pivot from this career in finance to a career in medicine. Well, I really did not lie. I only did finance for one year. I really did not. While I do love data and I'm a scientist and, you know, I, I love data on all levels. And I think that's where I really uh, love the finance world because it is data driven. It is motivated by information that is, um, you know, can be validated essentially. And so I was driven by that, but I really did not like the, the world. It was very oriented to purely around a lot of the talk of my peers and colleagues was purely around just make more money, make more money, make more money, make more money. And it wasn't really filling me with a, you know, a satisfaction of purpose. And I really was very interested in having a bigger role of impacting lives and, you know, and that could have been done from a finance perspective if, if the orientation in the industry was different, but I just wasn't finding that um, right off the bat. And so I started doing a lot of my own reading. I started finding myself in the evenings, checking out, you know, books from the library and just doing a lot of reading and what I was finding myself reading naturally were books on nutrition and herbology and that's what initially got me into looking at another career, which initially I didn't know anything about holistic health. I, I'm a naturopathic doctor and I didn't know anything about that. And I originally just figured, well, I will go into school, go back to school to be a dietitian. So that's kind of my, was my first track into wellness was basically I left the finance world and then I went back to school for, to become a dietitian. Once I was in that program, I ended up having one of my lab partners for organic chemistry. She was getting ready. She was finishing up her pre-meds to go into naturopathic medical school. And that was my first intro into that. And as soon as I met her and we were talking during one lab class, that's when like, I, I kind of had that like goosebump type of like, you know, you know, feeling like, um, with, with hearing about naturopathic medicine and 
I went and researched that night and read a bunch of stuff and realized that um, throughout all of my the training I'd done in the first part of my dietetics program that I had taken almost all the pre-med I needed to get into naturopathic medical school. And so I was able to get into school very, very quickly after that. Okay. So let's now focus on purpose, right? You yeah. were, you made a career pivot because you didn't feel that you were pursuing a purpose-filled life in the finance arena. And you wanted to now move into a place where you could help other people overcome dietary and or medical problems that then took you to, uh, to uh, school to become a naturopathic doctor. One of the things that we talk about on this podcast all the time are the differences between medical doctors and naturopathic doctors. We, we hear allopathic versus naturopathic. So talk to us about the differences and why you chose the naturopathic route? Yeah, it's a great question. I love this question. So one of the things I like to orient people to that is if you, and you can find these sites online where you look at like a classic conventional doctor program, like a medical doctor program and a true naturopathic doctor program. Now it's good to differentiate that there are some schools that are just online. And because naturopathic medicine is not recognized in all States, there are some States where people have just done these online types of programs and are calling themselves naturopathic doctors. The problem with that is it does not distinguish the education. Now, I know a lot of people that have gone through those online schools and learn a lot of great things and can really help people. So I'm not knocking the value in those things. I think there are there is value there. But when we're talking about when I'm about to present this contrast that I'm talking about, it really is contrasting true conventional medicine school with with in person, a four year doctorate degree. And there's only a few um, schools that are actually certified in a as true naturopathic medical schools in the United States. And so if you look at a true naturopathic school and compare it to a true conventional school, a conventional medicine school, what you're going to see is that the first two years of our curriculum are almost identical. You know, when it comes to truly understanding biochemistry, anatomy, physiology, all of the basics on how the body operates, we have that same base level, which is really great because there's, it puts us on very similar playing grounds with understanding the body and terminology and, and medicine so that we can talk to each other. And, you know, as an attorney, I'm sure, you know, you find this too, like there's a different language in medicine. And so it puts us in this ground of being able to all speak the same language, which is wonderful. Then when we get through the basic sciences where a, in classic, you know, allopathic and classic conventional type of medicine, they start doing rotations and learning treatment based upon pharmacology. We do learn pharmacology, but if you look at like our course content as, as naturopathic doctors, the number of hours that we actually spend in material compared to a conventional doc, it's actually significantly more. And that comes in in those later years of school. And it's because in addition to pharmacology, which we do study, we learn about herbology. We learn about nutrition. We learn about homeopathy. We learn um, tons of these different modalities. And we look a, more holistically, like the term functional medicine is very, very similar to naturopathic medicine because it's really looking very holistically and saying, you know what, a problem in the gastrointestinal tract could actually impact our hormonal system. And a problem in the gastrointestinal tract could actually lead to problems with us not being able to detoxify 
toxins, say from Lyme disease leading to Herxheimer's. So we spend a lot more time in naturopathic medicines, like really looking and identifying what are the root causes? How do we treat them really with the principle of first do no harm. So sometimes, you know, pharmaceutical medicine has its place. Absolutely. But if we can get the same results or better with something like an herb that has less side effects, we're probably going to use that first. And so it's kind of founded in more of those types of principles, really getting to the root versus just going and trying to say, treat fibromyalgia by giving, you know, antidepressants and pain medications to try to work with the symptoms. We're going to really say, why does that person have fibromyalgia to begin with? And, And the training is rooted in those principles. Now, during the course of this podcast, we've had many guests tell us that medical doctors fail to diagnose them with Lyme disease, but naturopathic doctors were able to diagnose them. What is the difference between the two that makes it more likely that a proper diagnos- diagnosis will come from a naturopathic doctor, at least in the Lyme world? It's a really great question. So some of it comes down, I believe, to how we're trained, one, by looking for the root cause. So some of it is purely from that training mechanism around always asking why, you know, and like allopathic and like conventional medicine, oftentimes the why ends when we get a diagnosis. So somebody is like, okay, well, we have, you know, we have headaches and we've ruled out space occupying lesions as a cause. And you know, some of the more severe reasons for say a headache, and then somebody truly gets just a headache diagnosis. And then it's just prescribed based upon that and say, well, our job's generally done. You've, you have headaches. We give you this medicine or we're done versus like our training more as natural passes really to ask the why. So it's saying, okay, well, sure. We can put a code on you and the insurance code that says you have a headache, but let's actually take them the next step and say, why do you have this? And so oftentimes the, the lab tests we're really thinking about running are really designed not to give the diagnosis, although you know there's value for that. It's not that we don't do that, but really to say, what are the underlying reasons for di- the diagnoses? And the diagnoses is many times the starting point and not the ending point with naturopathic medicine. So I think that's a large part of it is that we're oriented in this profession to continue to ask why, which allows us to think outside the box with types of lab testing that are actually going to solve that that question of why somebody has a disease process. Let's come back to your personal journey. You're You're now going to naturopathic medical school and you've not yet been diagnosed with Lyme disease. So talk to us about how your health was impacting your ability to study and be as successful as you wanted to be during uh, your, your time in medical school. So, was, so in school, I still was able to perform, you know, quite well. I, I basically, one of the things I was seeing though, was I was starting to see everything else in my life fall away. So beginning of school, when I first started naturopathic medical school, had you know ton of energy, was still very, very active in athletics, in social life, in travel, um, learning new sports. And then by the end of, of school, I remember having these thoughts. Like I remember like seeing people during the day and being like, I can pass out at any moment, just like having these which now I think, you know, there's some dysautonomia that was happening that I could have diagnosed back then. But I remember going, you know, saying I was going to go for a walk and getting like a block away from my house and being like, 
I don't even know if I can walk home, like, like extreme fatigue, extreme pain. But I was able to probably because I have an extremely, and, and this might be due to my athletic background of like pushing through, say, a wall where I was able to continue to, you know, to perform well at school and keep up on that. But literally everything else in my life fell away in order to make that happen. So let's talk about what you were learning in medical school that was helping you to understand more about the challenges that you were facing and were you able to manage those challenges even before you were able to locate a diagnosis? So luckily I found my very first year of medical school was actually when I found meditation and I had also started really working with uh, my internal belief systems on anything, on wellness, on happiness, on how I perceive the world. So a lot of what I was doing during that time, I was spending a lot of time meditating, a lot of time doing Qigong, which for those of you that don't know, is a slow martial art, kind of like a Tai Chi. Um, yoga is another you know, example of a slow movement practice. So I was, so I had certain skill sets that I had already learned that I was able to draw upon that were really helping. I think one, my nervous system and two, my mindset. Uh, and it really was this mind over matter. And if you, you know, if you talk to my parents, like my parents were so supportive during this, if you talk to my parents, they'll tell you the number of times that, um, that I called them like crying, like, I don't know how I'm going to make it. And at that time, it was really being just like pushed off what I was going through as medical school syndrome, you know, because we're, we're pushing it hard in medical school. We're up all night studying and hitting books and all of that. So it's so subjective, right? Lime. It was like, when I talked to my friends around, like, you know, do you feel like, how do you feel like, yeah, we're tired too. And how do you quantify that? It was hard to quantify that my tired was so different than they're tired. And I could not understand that at that time. So it really, a lot of what I was doing was a huge amount of mind over matter. And, um, and also realizing largely that for me, deciding not to continue, I felt, and like my parents told me, they're like, you can move home with us. Like you can figure things out. And for me, I was really nervous about the emotional impact that that would have by not being able to do that. And I was concerned that that actually might do me more damage than, than trying to push through. So let's talk about you moving from a conventional athletic approach to uh, movement to Qigong. Uh, we, we, we did a podcast a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was just released this past week where we um, interviewed an Uber fit young woman who believed that she had overdone it and that she had hmm. compromised her immune system. And that's one of the reasons why she had actually gotten sick in the first place. And ultimately, ultimately had, um, had a second uh, challenge of Lyme disease. Um, why did you move from traditional athletics to Qigong? And I'm, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it properly. Yeah. We have heard about that from Dr. Rawls, who's also an advocate of this um, yeah. and, and how your, how movement was important for you to heal and how, conservative movement was, was more appropriate for, uh, for protecting your, or building your immune system rather than the more conventional sports that you had been playing before. Sure. So there's, you know, with athleticism, there's a concept that any athletes and, and probably a lot of non-athletes have heard about called being overtrained. 
And overtrain usually it happens when all of a sudden the things that we were doing, we no longer recover from in the same sort of way. We can't keep up with that push. What's one of the things that's largely happening physiologically by being overtrained is a problem with the HPA access. And the HPA access problems are sometimes known in the layperson, the non-medical world as adrenal fatigue. Adrenal fatigue is not actually, it doesn't actually really happen. It's not like the adrenals. And for those of you, just to make sure we're on the same page, the adrenal glands are the glands that secrete stress hormones, hormones that give us energy, hormones that aren't just about stress, that are also about having enough energy to do what we want in our day and are related to the highs that we get from athleticism when we push through, you know, really hard workouts. So adrenal fatigue though itself, the adrenals don't actually get tired. It's not like the adrenals say one day, I got to take a nap. So what really happens from an adrenal perspective is we have a disconnect between the brain and the adrenals. It's called the HPA access. And when we have enough um, cortisol, one of our adrenal hormones, when we have that stimulated enough to from various like stressful types of things, the brain actually loses its ability to properly see the cortisol levels in the blood. And when the brain loses its ability to properly see the cortisol levels in the blood, then it doesn't give us the same sort of um, output. So if the brain doesn't see that cortisol is low, for example, then the brain doesn't send the signal to the adrenal glands to say, release more cortisol. So one of the things that happens with Lyme disease is that that cortisol, these adrenal hormones, they're anti-inflammatory. They really, and, and Lyme disease is a stress on the body. So one of the things that we can see and why Lyme will affect the adrenals and the HPA axis and lead to things that are commonly known as adrenal fatigue is due to this mechanism, is due to Lyme basically um, changing the brain adrenal access. And so the brain isn't able to properly do what we need it to do. Same thing goes for athleticism, right? So when we're pushing our body and we, this whole concept of being overtrained, where it's like, there's this dysfunction in what's happening between the brain and the adrenal access. And all of a sudden we don't perform athletically as well. That it's, it's very, very similar mechanism as what happens when we have an immune dysregulation and inflammatory situation, like with Lyme different, you know, the one's more positive stress, the other's more negative stress but they both can lead to the same point from an adrenal perspective. So one of the things that that Lyme will do by the nature of this is it will basically lead to this feeling of that, you know, an athlete would call being overtrained because the recovery isn't the same. And when we're trying to get the nervous system back in order, and we're trying to get the adrenal glands functioning well again, because we want the anti-inflammatory effects, we don't want to keep pushing the body and sending and creating say more of this dysfunction between the brain and the adrenals. So while I do find that movements is one of the most important things, like I, I know it's like so incredibly hard with Lyme disease. I've been there, you know, there's times where like the bed to the bathroom was like one of the most amazing feats of the morning kind of thing. And um, even though there is that, intensity, right. Of moving Qigong basically provides a way of moving a way of moving the lymphatic system, which is our immune system and our toxic system. And that sort of thing It's a way of moving the fluids in our body in a way 
that does not have the same level of impact on this brain adrenal access so that we can start working on that access, repairing that connection, leading to a better anti-inflammatory effect, and therefore helping with the whole process of Lyme. So it's really Qigong, Tai Chi are really ways of moving the body that still will allow for some of the benefits of exercise without putting the same set level of stress on the brain adrenal access, which is under stress with, with Lyme and some of these other chronic infections that we see. Now, did you have any difficulties moving from traditional athletics to Qigong, uh, or was it an easy transition for you to go from this more rigorous form of exercise to this more passive form of exercise? Oh, I hated it. I mean, I, I hated the, no, I didn't hate Qigong. I love Qigong, but I hated the movement um, of it because as somebody that like, you know, from an athletic perspective, I've always loved And, and now that I'm healthy again, I, I once again, love getting myself to that wall where most people are like, I'm done and pushing through it. And it provides so much from a happiness and joy and emotionally regulated standpoint, as well as I think pushing through a wall athletically is a really great analogy for life around pushing through hard times and stamina, endurance and um, commitment. You know, there's so much that I feel like athleticism has taught me and supported me in my emotional well-being. And and there was a loss with that. You know, there was a loss like I, I love the runner's high, that adrenaline that's surging through the body that provides a certain amount of, of euphoria. And, and Qigong is very, very different from that standpoint. So it provides a very, very different thing in that way. So absolutely there was, there was challenge with it, but I think one of the things mentally that helped me the most and, um, and, you know, and still, I think is, is something that continues to help me is not focusing on the things that we can't do. And spending a lot of time focusing on the things that we can, because a lot of dysautonomia and a lot of the stress that's placed on our body, like there's, there's really interesting research, for example, where two, like two groups of people are subjected to the same stress. And one of the stressors that researchers love to use on humans is mental arithmetic on stage, put people on stage, put them in front of an audience, shout out math problems, make them answer them right there. And so really cool study does, does this and has like these people and they're taking these quarters, all these stress hormone values throughout the stress test. And at the same time, they're actually taking these values or they're, they're taking these, um, this blood work. They're asking them at that moment, what's going on in their head, what sort of thought. And what they actually found is the dysregulation in the stress hormones was not related to the stressor. It was related to the internal dialogue they had about the stressor. So I think a lot of, um, yes, it was very, very hard. And a lot of how I manage it is still how I manage my life today, which is almost paradoxical of looking and finding the optimism and focusing on whatever we can do that mo- in that moment. You know, if it's just getting out of bed, if it's just doing five minutes of Qigong, if it's just taking a shower that day and finding a way to really focus on that and what we can do not on what we can't, but the paradox in that is focusing on what we can do while also looking to improve our future and, and that sort of thing. So it's not to say it's not passive acceptance. It's more like active acceptance of this is where I am in this moment. In this moment, I can just do Qigong. I'm so grateful that I can do Qigong and actually move my body at all. And I'm going to actively work to get myself in a better place. 
So I don't want this to be an episode about Qigong entirely, but I do have one more question. One of the things that Dr. Rolls shared with us is that he had a meditation app and I think there was some kind of a monitor that he was using and he, and he wasn't able to get into the state that he wanted to get into with the, with the meditation app and the, uh, and the sensors that he was using until he did the Qigong. So he realized that there was a, there was a, a mental or uh, emotional component to that. So how did Qigong help you emotionally and get to the place where you were focusing on the things you could control rather than things you couldn't control and what you had versus what you didn't have and how that helped you emotionally on your healing journey? Yeah, it's, I think to start, I would like to say that I think there's many different ways to get to the same place. And so like one of the things in our, in our medical practice that we do, we spend a lot of time working on the mind and, and as well as the body, but working on these types of concepts, because we really do see that there's, when we work on the mind and we work on stress resiliency, there is, there's so much less um, recurrent reactivation when we teach people and we teach people the habits of how to keep this in their lives than when people don't. So Qigong is one way of going about that. And there's many, many different ways. For me, Qigong was kind of coupled with meditation. Um, I use a meditation practice called Sheng Zhen. And it's basically a meditation practice that has that they used to call it Qigong. And, and now they've really more changed the framework to just talking about it as meditation. But the movements are basically Qigong type of movements. And for people too, with like a busy mind, when they were trying to figure things out and trying to uh, one deal with the brain fog that we have in order to, uh, and trying to figure out what's going on our health on top of it. One thing that's nice about Qigong or a meditative movement type of practice is it actually gives the brain something to focus on and it gets the brain out of story. You know, the thing that is really important with this stuff to with, you know, with Lyme and working with the mind that is so important to overcome. And it's not easy. What I'm about to say is it's so easy to get lost in the, in the circle, right. In the vicious circle of thought of I'm so sick. I'm never going to get better. Nobody understands me. Oftentimes what the heck is wrong with me? My spouse doesn't believe me. My partner doesn't believe me. My friends don't believe me. My parent, you know, in the story is just like, they just go and they can drive us mad. Grief cycle, right? I mean, you, you get yeah. the grief cycle. Right. And it's human. And it's like, that's why I say it's not, it's, it's easy to get stuck in that, but it's, it's not, it's, it can be difficult to get out of that, but it's one of the most important things that we do in Qigong is just one of many different ways that we can start working with and give tools to focus the mind on something else that will interrupt this cycle. And by interrupting this thought cycle, we're trying to get somebody out. We're trying to get you out of a fight or flight, which sends the signal to the body that says, don't heal your, your evolutionary running from a tiger. You know, we're trying to get people out of that and into the parasympathetic state, which is rest, digest, heal, be well, cellular repair. And so that's the purpose of these types of things and the value it provided for me. So now you're in medical school and you're having these challenges and you're essentially stripping everything out of your life other than your focus on your studies, because that's really all the energy you had left. But you are learning these different, learning how to use these different tools to keep yourself out of the grief cycle, out of the fight or flight mode. So you can learn during that window of time, right? Now, were you learning about these movement techniques and these meditation techniques in 
your naturopathic medical school curriculum, or is this something you were learning separately to get yourself through that program? I, so in addition to my doctorate in naturopathic medicine, I have a second doctorate in acupuncture and oriental medicine. And so the Qigong was actually part of that, um, of, of that training. So we used to even do quarterly, like weekend Qigong type of retreats, which I realized not everybody can do. And even if, you know, even if people can, um, spend, you know, just a, a weekend once in their life or a few hours, we did an internal research study at our clinic on, on meditation and Qigong, where what we did was we measured biomarkers on a Friday morning and we measured DHEA and cortisol. And then we did with this group, we did six hours of training of meditation and Qigong on Saturday and six hours on Sunday, and then remeasured the biomarkers on that Monday, same time of day, you know, to get that variable out. And it was unbelievable, like cortisol levels that were like, not even in range, like almost flatline, completely going normal DHEA levels, that for women, we want two to 300. And for men, we typically want three to 500. And seeing people that were also almost at zero turning back into range after just a couple days. So really, really, really cool. And so that was part of my particular training. And and so I, I just want to say that even though, yes, I was doing some of those weekend retreats that I know that's difficult for people with kids and families and all that. And, and you don't have to have, like, it's amazing to have that deep dive, but you don't have to have that level of um, seriousness or level of time commitment to make really profound results. So you're essentially on this double major path while you're on, when you're going through medical school. And because you're on that path, you're developing skills that are allowing you and, 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 and tools to allowing you to get through medical school so you can get to the end, right? So talk to us about how your health, um, how your health was uh, doing when you graduated from school and, uh, and where did that take you professionally? So when I graduated from school, it was, it was definitely at a point where I was starting to have some pretty scary symptoms. So I was having symptoms such as driving and having so much like numbness, like just randomly occur in my hands where I'd have to pull over on the side of the road and just like sit there sometimes in panic, um, doing my breathing techniques to try to keep myself calm. And so I was having weird symptoms like that. The scariest one was when I would, I would almost have these, I would call them episodes where I would just lose track of where I was. I would lose track of random things. Like when I would go for one of my four, five minute walks around the block, cause that's all I could really do at that point besides Qigong. Um, when I would do that, sometimes I would leave my house and I would have this, like this cloud would come over and I would get turned around and everything would look hazy. And I, I would forget like temporarily where I lived. And this would only last for just, you know, a couple minutes. It was like, these episodes were very, very, very short, luckily. But I remember this one, like where I just sat under this tree and it's like, everything looked distorted. Um, it was just, it was almost like, it was almost like I was hallucinating or something, but, but everything was normal. You know, it was, it was so weird. It was so weird. So I started having this, like these really cognitive dysfunction types of, of episodes, but because they were only a couple minutes, it wasn't like I was still able to do my work and do my thing. So then I graduated and I moved to Colorado from Portland, Oregon. And 
I immediately um, broke my arm and as soon as I moved. And so I think it was, that was maybe the confounding factor because after that, that's when um, symptoms of fibro really started kicking in. I was already having some pain, but that's when like the pain got to that next level. It was almost like that final stressor, right? That my body was like, you're done. And, and so I had that happen. I started developing really, really serious headaches and some pretty uh, severe fatigue. And that went on for a couple months. And I was still kind of uh, putting that on a shelf of like healing from medical school. And after a couple months, I was like, this is something's not right. And that's when I started reaching out to my colleagues from school and asking them how their recovery was going post post education. And when I kept consistently hearing like this, I'm getting better. I feel like my old self again. And I realized that I was getting significantly worse. That was that was actually when it really began to like kick into me that it wasn't medical school syndrome, that it wasn't an adrenal dysregulation, that there was something or it wasn't just that there was something much more severe happening. So now before we get to the next stage in your journey, I want to ask you about how you feel about going through medical school, being around some of the top doctors in the world because they're teaching at the medical school you having all of these symptoms and none of them giving you either a diagnosis or giving you the tools you needed to diagnose yourself before you graduated from uh, from medical school. Now, by the way, I asked the same question to Dr. Casey Kelly, who graduated from Ohio State with her MD, yeah. because she had exactly the same experience. So I, I want, I'd like to get your take on how you felt about, how you feel now about graduating from school and being around all these really smart um, you know, leaders in the academic world, and none of them were able to give you a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, I feel really, really excited about my foundational education. I really think the school did an amazing job. And I think it's important for people that are, you know, in school that have graduated school that realize that there's only, you know, in a four year doctorate degree, there's only so much that can be taught. And, you know, there was one, you know, one semester I had 30 credit hours at a doctoral level, you know, it was like, there's only so much that can be taught. So I, I do not have any, I have nothing but really, really positive feelings towards my education and the school. And they gave me a great foundation. And well, I believe it's a different question. Yeah. Why do okay. None of your professors noticed that you had Lyme disease when they were interfacing with you while you were in medical school. I think it's simple. I think there's just not a lot of awareness. You know, I think it's just still something that we're still just re realizing in, you know, the past decade, even is that the profound, um, impact that it really is having on, you know, on the world and how severe it is at how common it is. So to me, it's probably just a, it's a really simple thing of like, there's just a lot of, a lot more awareness that, that really needs to have, you know, happen. So now you, I asked you before why you thought naturopathic doctors may be better qualified or at least getting better results in um, identifying people who have Lyme disease. And you believe that it's because of the foundational approach you take to trying to identify the basis of an illness rather than getting better training about Lyme itself when you were in medical school. 
So, so the question is why in medical school, there's not better training online? No, no, no. So what we, we had spoken a little bit earlier and we are sort of bouncing around a little bit, but I can't avoid, you know, going off on tangents as a, uh, as a line geek when I have someone like you, but you know, yeah. one of the tangents I took you off on before we were, before we were where we are now is I had shared with you that many of our guests have told us that naturopathic doctors are better at, at mm-hmm. helping them to get to a Lyme disease diagnosis. And you would, you had argued to me that you believe that perhaps the difference in the way that you're trained as a naturopathic doctor, as opposed to the allopathic doctors who are not necessarily trained to find the root cause is why you're having better success. Yes. However, even in naturopathic school, you're not really Mm -hmm. getting any more training about Lyme disease itself. You're just giving, you're just being given better tools to get you to the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think, and I think this is going to continue to happen way beyond Lyme. I think Lyme is a great example of what I'm about to say of there's always, you know, medicine is always changing. We're always learning new things and it doesn't always, it takes sometimes years for the latest things to get updated into the curriculum, right. Of any school. And so this is why I think it's really, really important that doctors and clinicians still continue to beyond continuing education, because we don't see in like a lot of our continuing education classes, like I do some, some um, CEUs for natural paths and, and train on Lyme disease, but there it's, it's a pretty rare thing to see that. So I really feel like doctors need to have, and clinicians of all types need to either have in their schedule every week a time period where they're going to spend a couple hours researching things or have like, we have a, one of the other businesses I have is an online program where I I coach doctors and mentor doctors all over the world. And the idea with that is in part to help doctors that like don't have the time to do the research is to say, let me do the research for you. And then let's talk about the things that, that really are coming up that I think are important for you to be aware of from a research perspective. So some sort of plan in the schedule of some type to continue to educate because this stuff just doesn't always make its way into the educational system, especially when this field is so changing and we're learning so much every day. So now let's talk about uh, how your career moved from student to now doctor. Where did you start to work and what types of patients were you treating when you graduated from medical school? Yeah. So the, in the beginning, I was not treating a ton of, I, at least I shouldn't say that I wasn't aware of really of Lyme yet when I first started practicing. So I was working with a lot of, a lot of thyroid, a lot of hormones um, of like sex hormones, adrenal issues, so chronic fatigue, a lot of digestive problems, a lot of autoimmune disease. So those were some of the more common things. And, but like I said, when I first started treating and working and my, my health was really declining. And so very early on and all of that, that's when I, you know, started saying like, I've got to figure out what's happening here. Started thinking, started doing my own reading, started thinking outside the box and basically ran, you know, every naturopathic type of test, every root cause tests that I could really think of at the time. One of them was, um, you know, was for Lyme. And that's when I discovered that as well as 
a lot of other, you know, imbalances. There's, there's tons of, of things. Um, I had a very, very, very long list, um, but Lyme was Lyme and Bartonella, Babesia, you know, these other tick-borne infections were part of it. So that really brought my awareness to Lyme. And as I started, you know, studying it and treating myself and, and seeing some pretty major improvements, one of the interesting things that happened, and this is just, I think, a fascinating thing around the, how the world work, works. It's like, I, I imagine I had clients that were early on in my practice that had Lyme that I did not have the awareness to look for Lyme yet at that point. So I imagine there were times that 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 happened and that they that diagnosis slipped by me. But what really began to be interesting is once I learned about this and really started dedicating my life to learning about how to work with Lyme, the number of people that like came in and like that matched Lyme symptomatology. And then I would test and, you know, and find it, like I said, it's like, it's like turned into three quarters of my practice and it's just so common. And that was a really cool thing about continuing to develop my own awareness is, is that then I began to develop the skills to help people at this much more profound level. So let's pause that for a second. I do want to talk to you about awareness in more detail, mm -hmm. but talk to us about how you ultimately got to your Lyme diagnosis and what testing did you use? Yeah. So I used, um, Igenix and I used gosh, another company, um, Immuno, Immuno Science, I believe is the name of the company. It's a company I'm not using anymore. These days I'm using a lot of, um, Vibrant Wellness is the company I use now for Lyme testing because, one of the challenges I see with Lyme testing is that there's different ways of looking for a Lyme. There's like PCR, we're looking for the DNA. There's immunoglobulin test where we're looking more for our immuno response. And sometimes one mechanism works better than another for a variety of reasons we can get into if, if that's useful. But um, I like Vibrant Wellness now because of they have a check and balance with using a different different types of technology for looking at Lyme. So we have the more it's more likely, I think, with a check and balance type of situation to find it. But, but back then I was using um, these other couple companies and found Lyme. And as far as treating, I started talking to a lot of my colleagues and colleagues. I, I did some studying, some traveling with different Lyme literate docs, um, local and then around the country when I was first learning this. And so many people were really into using heavy pharmaceuticals and I really didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that with my naturopathic background. I didn't want to use, do it with my um, concern about my digestive health and the effect on the microbiome. So a lot of my studying then really began in finding people like Dr. Dietrich Klinghart was somebody that I started studying with a lot, his work. And then um, doing my own, you know, my own research on whatever studies I could find. So my treatment was largely, you know, from those types of things, because I really did not want to use pharmaceuticals. Okay. But before you get into treatment, let's go back yeah. to diagnosis. So okay. now you have a Lyme disease diagnosis. How did that change you socially? Meaning, did you now, uh, well, actually, let me ask you the question first. Emotionally, now you have a diagnosis. Now you know what's wrong with you. How does that change your mindset once you have a diagnosis? Definitely relieving, you know, definitely relieving and definitely scary, you know, and I think 
there's a couple different things to say on that. I mean, one, like to have a, have a reason when it's been just medical school syndrome or IBS or whatever sort of label to actually have something that was like, felt like a real root, a real root cause was relieving because to me, answers are power and they've always been that way. And Lyme, having a Lyme diagnosis certainly can be scary. And at the same time, when we have a diagnosis, we can, when we have an answer, we can form a plan because we know what the problem is. So I actually found a huge amount of relief. Um, even socially, it was really helpful to be able to understand like, oh, okay, this is why I feel like, you know, it's Saturday and I have to tell and cancel my hike, my, you know, my hiking plans with my friends because of this. And now I have a reason behind it besides I'm just tired. Um, I still didn't really explain at that time. I still didn't really tell my, I did tell my family that I had Lyme, but I didn't really go into details on that. And I wasn't spending a lot of time during that time with my family just because I didn't have the stamina. So I was, I still gave me this, I still was in challenge around how to talk about it. And, you know, and that's one of the reasons too, like in, in my book that I just published several months ago, one of the chapters I talk about is like, is this thing, like, how do we, how do we talk about it with our family, our friends, where is, you know, you mentioned social media, you know, before our time here today. And it's like, where is social media, a beneficial thing where we can find like supportive care and answers and solutions and where is it, you know, challenging. So I really feel like an answer to your question around like the impacts of the diagnosis and how I was feeling. I really feel like the relief was huge. Um, the ability to almost stand behind my needs and, and realize that, okay, my needs that I was asserting with my social life had reason and had value, my, my confidence in that. Um, and it also, I think, really reactivated my will. Um, because at that point, prior to that point, I was also considering moving to a desert Island, like do like, I thought at one point I was dying and I was like, maybe there's a cheap hut I can rent and, you know, basically tan my body into death essentially. (laughs) Um, and so I was really going down that mental route of like, I thought that was the option. So, um, even though I knew I had a road ahead of me, it really did help with, the confidence and reactivating that will to live because now I knew that I could come up with answers and solutions because I understood the problem. So it was one of the tools that helped you to get out of the grief cycle. Huge. Yeah. So before I give you over to Matt, who I know wants to choke me because I'm not letting you go, but again, as a line geek, I can't, uh, I can't miss any opportunity to talk with someone like you. Um, talk to me about, talk to me about, um, the world changing for you once you understood that uh, Lyme disease existed and it was everywhere because we see the same thing, right? You know, before I was Lyme woke, um, you know, I, I had bumped into a lot of people who I now know have Lyme disease and I'm able to say to them, hey, you should be going to see a doctor about Lyme disease because I'm now aware of the symptoms, right? Um, talk about how you now see it everywhere when you didn't see it anywhere now that you've become Lyme aware and how that changed your ability to help people end or overcome the suffering caused by Lyme disease. I mean, certainly Lyme is one of the great mimickers, right? So it can look almost like any other disease process, what, which is one of the reasons why it is 
hugely missed. So I, I test not, not every single person, every once in a while, it'll be somebody that is like, you know, they really do just have a swollen ankle and it really is just a swollen ankle. But for the most part, I, I test a great majority of my patient population for Lyme. So my, you know, my personal professional opinion is, is that it's really important to have the awareness that it could be Lyme and test for it and look for it. But also like I see problems with getting like so blinded that we're like just saying everything is Lyme too, but that's why we test. Right. And that's one of the greatest things about, about testing and about understanding symptoms. And of course the tests aren't perfect, but, but they can give us some pretty great information. And so a lot of it, I would say in, in just being more woke as you, you know, as you use that term around Lyme is really just, you know, understanding that it can look like almost anything that people are, if especially, you know, you tried some basic things, you're not responding. It's worth testing. It's worth testing. It's worth seeing. It's worth talking to a Lyme literate doc and just having more awareness, but also, like I said, not being so hard on it always has to be Lyme because it's, it is, I do find that Lyme's involved a lot of times. Of course, it's not involved every time. Right. And of course, and, and we have to strike that balance, but you know, one of the things that we've seen, unfortunately, with too many people in the medical community is doctors go from not being able to diagnose your symptoms to you being crazy rather than testing for Lyme, right? And that's yes. really where we find it frustrating. And, you know, and, and quite frankly, that's, I know that's one of the things you dealt with in your book. And I do want to talk with you about your book when we, when we get to the later part, portions of this podcast, but let's talk about the importance of being a symptom aware for the patient population so that we can be good partners with doctors like you and come to you with enough information to allow you to diagnose us with Lyme disease. Because on too many occasions, we've, we've, been, um, we've been in podcast interviews with folks who have told us that they were, they were actually diagnosed with Lyme disease by another person who has Lyme disease or a family member of somebody who has Lyme disease because their doctors were not aware enough of the symptoms to even consider it. And the doctors were rushing to uh, psychosomatic um, um, determinations and it's all in your head determinations rather than Lyme disease until they came to their doctor with, with the potential of Lyme disease. I think it's really important to, you know, to realize that yes, there are psychosomatic things. The brain is very powerful, but that as a root cause diagnosis is such a small amount of the time. It's so, 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 so small that I think it's, we've gotten to this point where it's like, I I've honestly never seen one patient, never that it's all in their head. Never. You know, I expect in my career, maybe I will see one in my entire career. Like this is not where we should be going. And I think it's just so important that as clinicians, we believe our patients and that 99.999% of the time, if people are there to see us because of a symptom, they're really experiencing that symptom. Why and so is it I think so often, and why is it happening so often with women in particular? You know, I think it's, I don't have the perfect answer for that. I mean, I think some of it is just lack of education, lack of awareness. I think there used to be a lot more in the medical paradigm around, you know, this being taught, you know, I think the problem comes from education on some standpoint, 
So I don't have the perfect answer for why that is happening other than I do think there needs to be a lack of a better awareness. And also I think, I mean, not to go down a crazy open, you know, open a crazy Pandora's box, but I think some of this is also just due to our current medical model where doctors have seven minutes with a patient. And now most of the time under insurance, you're not allowed to talk about more than one symptom at one time. You can talk about your headache, but you're not allowed to tell your doctor that you also have any other symptom at all. And so when there's this lack of really understanding the whole person, it's easy to miss something, especially when there's not a lot of time to thoroughly think because you're burning and churning patients. And it's just, you know, it's just like going to that first diagnosis. Oh, it must be in your head because there's not a lot of time to actually logically think through this. So I think there's a big, I think there's a big Pandora's box here. <laughs> it is a big Pandora's box, but it's even the pen portion of the Pandora's box that you began your book with, where you were essentially apologizing for describing Lyme disease as a disease that has a mental health component. Right. So, and you, and you spent a lot of time dealing with that in your book, which, as I said, we're going to spend more time talking about it, but if that was such an important part of your journey and it's, and, and it's where you began your book, it's not something we can ignore here because it's a large part of what we see every day in our podcast with almost 200 people that we've interviewed. Almost every one of them was told it's in your head before they tried to get to a Lyme diagnosis. So I'm, I'm just trying to explore with you why there's such a divide. And I know I'm challenging you to, you know, to take a strong position here, but it is an important piece of this because there are many, many people who are suffering because doctors are more comfortable with telling you that you're crazy rather than saying either, I don't know, or at least considering Lyme. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't know if it's that doctors are more comfortable with saying they're crazy as much as like through training it's in their, you know, it's been educated that if there's not a reason, if there's not something that I think some of the training has been like, if we can't find this on some of the lab tests, answer solution reason is it's in your head. So some of it comes down to the paradigm of how clinicians are being taught versus like, if you can't find this on a lab test, run more lab tests, think, think in different ways, you know, hit the books. And I think, so I think some of it is just a paradigm that really needs to change in medicine around what's, how we're being trained to think about disease. If people are not getting well, you know, if people are not getting well, what, what is, where is the brain going next? And, and if the training is you're not getting well, everything's normal in labs answer it must be in your head. If that's literally it's belief, right? So if that's what we're trained in our medical school systems, and that's what we're trained by talking to our colleagues, that's, that's a, that's a belief system. And that's a paradigm shift that really, really needs to happen to move from that to if, if you're not feeling well, and if the lab tests are normal, look deeper, you know, explore more. And that's, it's, it's a huge paradigm shift that needs to happen. And, and so I think until we, really start changing that paradigm at a more foundational level, people are going to have to continue to be advocates for themselves and fight against this because the unfortunate thing about like the belief system is that when we have a belief, usually the brain will continue to look for ways of proving the belief, right? So if I have a belief that the world is out to get me, what I'm going to see and orient to every day is all the ways the world is out to get me. Right. And so the activation system, right? The rise receptor right. is going to find it, right? 
Correct. Exactly. So the same thing with, you know, with like this whole topic on if you're not well, and if we can't find something, it must be in your head. If that's the core belief, then it's, then people are going to continue to look for things that prove that belief versus actually changing at more of a foundation educational level and say, okay, well, we're going to actually now teach that if there is a problem and if the patient is suffering and if there isn't a solution that's easily found, this is actually what you do next. You don't blame it on the patient's brain. You don't say that it's in their head. You know, you, you actually do your job to go deeper, but it, it needs to start probably more at a paradigm type of level. So one of the last things I want to share with you is that we've interviewed many young people who were suffering from Lyme disease during their childhood. And one of the things they shared with us as the most painful part of this experience, or one of the most painful parts of this experience is when the doctors are telling their parents there was nothing wrong with the child, and then the parents were believing the doctor in, in, the, in the diagnosis that it was in the child's head, we had this, not only this, this, this extension of suffering from the child's standpoint, um, you know, physically, but emotionally it destroyed in many cases, the relationship that the children had with their parents. So there are just so many ramifications to this, to this challenge. And on, on some level, I think it's fair to uh, blame the educational system. On some level, I think it's fair to blame the insurance system. But quite frankly, I think on some level, we have to acknowledge that some doctors are just simply lazy and they're just not, they're not, uh, they're not just being good people when they're, when they're willing to just, just write off a child as, as making up a diagnosis or, or I should say making up a symptom. Sure. I mean, there's always, I think in any profession, we can argue good people and, you know, people that are, that are not hard workers and people that are dedicated. I think that's true at any profession. I know most of the, the docs and colleagues that I come across and I have these very intellectual conversations with around, you know, why these things are not happening. 90, you know, I'd say maybe even a hundred percent of the docs I meet really, really do care and it's just more of a belief system. So I don't, you know, I, I don't, I think you're right in that. Yeah, there's always in any profession going to be really, really positive, good people and people that aren't doing their job as well. But at least the docs that I talk to, I haven't had the feeling that it comes from lack of care as much as a paradigm problem with lack of time. And, you know, it's like I have, um, I have a friend, colleague, an MD who ended up leaving the, um, the conventional medicine. She was doing internal medicine and she started spending more time doing like nutrition counseling and trying to, and basically spending more time with her patients. And she was called into her supervisor's office and saying, this is not billable. We can't keep our business open if you continue to do this. And she was basically told that she either needs to stop this behavior of spending time really trying to help her patients, or she was going to be out of a job. So she actually quit and she does something. She owns a yoga studio now and went in a completely different direction because she felt like she could not, once she had learned more, she felt like she could not um, ethically do what she was doing. So when I hear stories like that, I you know, it's like, yes, I do believe there are clinicians that are not good, just like any, any profession, but I've really, from like getting to the root cause and diagnosing the problem, 
I really think the problem is much more from the paradigm of the medicine, the medical model, and not allowing doctors to be set up for success, not supporting them in having enough time, not supporting them with the education, the belief system that's going to be best for the patient. And that that's the root cause of the problem that really needs to be addressed. So that's kind of where I stand on, on that. Dr. Mueller, I think your world is very different than the world that I've experienced as a chronic Lyme patient, for example, because I ended up in the ER numerous times after having a seizure and fainting and waking up in the hospital and having doctors tell me to my face and telling my friends in the hallway that essentially I'm crazy and I'm going to end up in the psych ward after being a completely healthy individual and, and just really over a short period of time becoming bedbound and saying we did the million dollar workup. And at that point, if the lab work didn't show anything, it must be psychological, right? So I think that is a, is a major problem. And I think they need to be more aware just because lab work is coming back normal. It doesn't mean there's something else. It doesn't mean it's psychological. And that is the main reason we see a lot of Lyme diagnostic journeys be so delayed because lab work is not accurate and doctors won't do the deep dive they have to. And even when I went to a neurologist who did spend a lot of time with me prior to my current neurologist, after having a discussion back and forth and running some labs on his own, it still came back that, you know what, all my blood work is fine that I ran for you and you really should go see a, see a psychologist. So I think it's even deeper than what you're describing. And I think it requires a really global change to how we look at medicine to dig deeper, like what you do in the naturopathic world to say, let's look at the body as a whole and figure out what's really causing your symptoms instead of saying you're going to end up in a psych ward, which only makes us spiral even more with our health. No, hundred percent. I agree with all of that. Yeah. It's a, it's a major, major problem that needs to be changed on the deepest of levels. So I do want to follow up on something you were talking with Rich about to get a little more detail. So you did mention earlier on about the HPA access in our adrenal glands when you were speaking about over-exercising and over-exerting yourself as a Lyme patient. And you mentioned that the HPA balance in the brain or HPA access in the brain is not sending the appropriate signal to the adrenal glands to excrete cortisol which is necessary when you're, when you're exercising. But we hear a lot from the Lyme community that they have, they're stuck in fight or flight and they have an overabundance of cortisol, which results in stress. So I feel like there's two sides to that where you're, you're describing one where there's not enough cortisol when somebody's exercising, but on the other hand, that stress hormone is, is, is over in an abundance in some people causing them to be stuck in fight or flight. So can you explain to us you know, the difference between why it's lacking in exercise, but also in some other patients, it may be causing some of their stress and causing their fight or flight and lack of, of, of really the ability to get out of the paralysis that they're stuck in with Lyme disease. Sure. I mean, there's, there's a couple of different things to be clear. I mean, so one from a physiological perspective of how the body works, this brain adrenal thing, the easiest way to describe it that I think a lot of people have some level of awareness on without a medical background is, is like with insulin resistance. So most people have heard of insulin resistance um, with blood sugar issues, which is essentially where insulin, the hormone that basically helps us get sugar out of our blood into our cells, the receptor which basically sit on the cell, don't see insulin. So like with insulin, what will happen is with an insulin resistance is the body, the receptors on the cell, what's supposed to happen is the insulin supposed to bind to that receptor. And that allows the cell to say, oh, there's insulin here. We need to move glucose from the blood to the cell. There's a problem at the receptor level, insulin doesn't bind and the cell basically does not see that the insulin's there. The body starts kicking out more and more insulin. And that's basically how we, we see these high levels of insulin and in pre-diabetes, you could say. 
Same thing's happening at the brain level, the hypothalamic pituitary level of the brain with cortisol. So it's the same sort of mechanism where due to something, it could be Lyme, it could be over-exercise, we're seeing that the receptor level is changing and that change of the receptor level is making it so the body cannot see the amount of cortisol there. For some people that cortisol is low, for other people that cortisol is high. So it can go, I didn't say that earlier, but it can go either way for people when they have a receptor issue. Now, the other thing to know is that for, um, for things like, like Lyme, for things that are stressors on the body, one of the things that we often see when we test is we will see a low cortisol, but somebody feels like they're in fight or flight. Well, why is that? It's because it's actually not cortisol. They will think it's cortisol. And then we test and it's actually adrenaline. It's epinephrine or norepinephrine. And what's interesting is the same mechanism in the brain that said that is telling the adrenals, the adrenals also release uh, adrenaline. So they release cortisol. They also release adrenaline, different parts of the adrenal release different hormones. And so what's interesting is that signal from the brain to the adrenals to release adrenaline is also connected to the brain adrenal axis and what cortisol is doing. So if we have a problem with the cortisol system, it will also lead to a problem in the proper excreting of adrenaline. And there's a real common pattern in Lyme people, the tired, but wired I'm exhausted and, but yet I have anxiety. I'm exhausted. And yet I can't turn my mind off. I'm exhausted yet. I feel I'm in fight or flight. Oftentimes lab testing, that sort of symptomatology shows up as low cortisol, high adrenaline. It can sometimes be high cortisol, high adrenaline or high cortisol, low adrenaline. But what I classically see the most is low cortisol, low adrenaline. But, but just, you know, to kind of sum up and answer your question, that dysregulation between the brain, brain and the adrenals can manifest as high cortisol or low cortisol. It's just that the brain is not seeing what the adrenals are doing. So we're talking pure cortisol how high cortisol would look is the body is cranking out all this cortisol and it's not properly stimulating the receptors at the brain level. So the brain is not sending the signal to the adrenals that say, that says, Hey, you kind of have enough of this happening here. Why don't we stop, you know, secreting so much cortisol? It can work in either direction. So I think what I'm hearing Dr. Mueller is in some cases, the cortisol is high, but the receptors aren't detecting that. And therefore the brain is just telling it to trigger more and more and more cortisol. But from what you yeah. just described in many patients that you treat, it's not the cortisol that's high. It's the adrenaline that's being produced by the adrenal glands. And that's, what's causing that fight or flight. Like I can't calm down, but I'm also exhausted. That's the hormone that's really causing this, this feelings, overwhelming feeling in many Lyme patients. Correct. So how do you get to fix that, right? So now you have a problem where the brain is not properly communicating with your adrenal glands, your hormones are all out of whack. And many people just say, well, I have a hormone imbalance and I have to address that, but it's gotta be deeper. So how do you treat that in your patients? So in treatment, I always feel like there's two things that we need to do. Yeah, there's a lot of things, but we can say there's, there's two from a body perspective, there's two foundational categories, and then we can spring into a bazillion subcategories from there. But one is to basically address the cause. And the second is to address the mess that the cause created. And both of these things need to be, need to be dealt with. And oftentimes in medicine, we're only dealing with one of the two, you know, where if we're treating Lyme, oftentimes we're just like killing the bug. We're killing the Borrelia. Or, or if we're not aware of Lyme and we see an adrenal issue, then we're just trying to fix the adrenal glands. 
And both of these things really seem to need to come together and be addressed. So absolutely, in order to help, say, with an HPA access dysregulation, the classic adrenal fatigue, as I described, we absolutely want to do things to reset that resistance. But we also need to fix the Lyme and any other root causes, including our mental processes of how we're dealing with the stress. Now, there's a whole category of herbs known as adaptogens. And what's super interesting is adaptogens. So these are things like um, like ginseng, right? Rhodiola. There's a ton of these adaptogens out there. And one of the things that's often taught is like, well, adaptogens can bring cortisol. They can bring hormones up or down. You know, that's what makes them adaptogenic. They're smart. What are they doing physiologically? What are they doing? They are able to change and they're able to normalize high cortisol or low cortisol because they change the receptor resistance. That's what these herbs are doing to make them adaptogenic is they're actually changing how our brain is signaling the adrenal glands. Can I interrupt this you for a second? Because I'm sorry, because that's really powerful. Ah, so you, so I think you're saying that adaptogenic herbs actually allow our receptors to process properly and therefore identify when we have enough either cortisol or adrenaline. And then as a result, our brains will tell our adrenal glands to balance it out is what you're saying. Correct. Yeah. That that's is, why they're so cool. Wow. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'm sure you had more to go on. I just, that blew me away. So I had to make sure I understood that correctly. No, please. I mean, that's, that's kind of the foundation of that. So we want to, so it's like, we can do things, for example, like some people go on like a compounded, like hydrocortisone, typically not the best idea I find for most people, but there are exceptions. The natural version of it is more like an adrenal glandular, which will actually have small amounts of cortisol in it. So these are things, obviously we would do if cortisol is low, we would not do that if cortisol is high. Um, so there can be things that we can do to supplement and help the adrenals. But as far as really reversing the dysfunction, we really want to set, you know, reset that brain adrenal access, which is where those adaptogenic herbs are work great. But then you might have some listeners, you guys might have some listeners that are like, well, I tried rhodiola or I tried ginseng and, and it didn't work well. If we do not also fix the root causes, there's usually more than one of why that receptor resistance happened, we're just going to be continually sending that mechanism to go back to that whole receptor resistance and brain adrenal dysfunction. So it's really important. It's not going to work if we just give somebody rhodiola or give somebody ginseng or give somebody one of these great herbs. It, we also need to say, okay, well, we need to do the Lyme. We need to do the Bar or the uh, Babesia, the Bartonella. We need to look and say, are there heavy metals? Are there environmental toxins? Are there other things from a root cause perspective that are leading to this and find and identify and fix those two. So Dr. Mueller, in your case, heavy metal toxicity, mold exposure, things like that generally get amplified as a result of tick-borne illness. So do you, have you found that if you can address the various tick-borne illnesses like the Lyme and various co-infections and you're using adaptogens to regulate essentially your nervous system and your hormone regulations, that those other things will sort of subside on their own because you're getting the body to sort of restart itself? Or do you really have to specifically target mold susceptibility and heavy metal toxicity as well? Or is that just sort of a byproduct that gets better as treating the other things? Most of the time I have found just like with Borrelia that all the root causes do need to be you know, treated. If somebody is in a moldy home, it seems to be very, very important to get them in an environment. 
you know, what's really great is that a lot of these treatments overlap, right? So a lot of people with Lyme have Herxheimer reactions, which I am not a fan of. I think there's ways to treat that can really, really minimize it. And there's problems with Herxheimer. Herxheimers are essentially where we have more toxins from the die off in this example of Lyme, because Lyme Borrelia, when it dies, it will release its toxic byproducts. The body has to detoxify. So Herxheimer is really when we have more byproducts that are being released and the body can deal with. And that's why having people on appropriate detox protocols are really important. Now, if we know somebody has a lead or mercury or, you know, one of these other metals, but we know they have a metal overload, we also know they have mold overload. There are things that we can do from a treatment perspective that are like high fit bang for the buck, so to speak, around like hitting multiple of these factors at the same time, you know, in order to, um, you know, to move treatments a little faster for people. But typically I do find that most of the root causes do need to be identified themselves. Now there's other things, for example, like um, sometimes somebody has a low DHEA or low testosterone level. And sometimes the body does need uh, things that are directly helping those levels return to normal. Other times I find that when we treat the root, some of those types of things will change on their own. But I do tend to find that we do need to actually treat the root and then retest and, and see with some of these other biomarkers, okay, what has changed? What has resolved because we've treated the root? And what do we need to go in and help the body and support the body with the recovery of getting some of those other things back to normal? Dr. Mueller, I do want to get to the, the Herx topic with you, but I just want to have a follow-up question on the, the whole fight or flight and the adaptogenic herb component. So for example, I myself recovered a little bit, and then I was in a constant state of fight or flight, and I was afraid to do anything. I was essentially paralyzed. And for whatever reason, I decided to take this HPA balance by Dr. Rawls, which is why we're, I think we're so interested in this topic, Rich and I, because we both take the HPA balance by Dr. Rawls, which is essentially ashwagandha, L-theanine, and various tree barks. And yeah. after years of inaction on my part, within a few weeks of taking the HPA balance, I decided to take the full restore kit herbal protocol, which is a pretty, it's 24 herbal capsules and a lot of herbs per day, which I was so afraid to do prior because I was afraid I was going to have a backslide in my health after the progress I've made. So how do you work with your patients who are stuck in fight or flight, who are paralyzed to get them to take action when they are so afraid to do anything because they feel their health is so fragile? So, I mean, there's obviously the, you know, the obvious things of like healthy, like MCAS is a good example, right? Somebody that is highly, highly reactive to everything. And there's obviously that, that whole thing was starting one at a time and going really slow. I mean, for the really, really reactive people, I will have them like, if something's encapsulated, I'll have them dump out the capsule, take the teeniest little bit of like a powder, put it in water and literally take one sip of like, stir it up in like a full, you know, a full, like 12 ounce glass of water, literally take one sip of that water. You know, so there's a variety of ways we can really, really dilute things if we need to. I don't find that many people have to go to that level of slowness, but this is where it really is so important to understand how the body fits together entirely. So one of the examples that I give of this in my book is small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. So there's a vicious cycle with SIBO because we know that that Lyme can interrupt the neurology of the digestive tract and could potentially lead and, and contribute to some of that overgrowth that we see with small intestinal overgrowth, bacterial overgrowth, otherwise known as SIBO or SIBO. Now, so Lyme, Lyme could cause that and, or we can have a situation where we get, there's a, many different causes of this bacterial overgrowth. 
Another thing that can happen is when we have this bacteria overgrowth, the, when these bacteria die, they release a toxin known as lipopolysaccharide or LPS for short. LPS will actually block two of our liver detox pathways, the proteins um, that actually carry toxins out of the liver. And so if somebody has Borrelia, but they also have SIBO, they are going to have a more of a tendency to have a Herxheimer, a die-off type of reaction to, to taking any of these supplements and because they can't get it out. And if we put them on phase one and phase two, these classic liver detoxifiers, glutathione, milk thistle, NAC, you know, SAMI, all of these, these, these detox types of nutrients, if we put them on them and they're breaking down the toxins, but they have a block in the liver's ability to get the toxins that are broken down out, which is what SIBO will block. Then all of those toxins just go back into systemic circulation. So, and they make us very sick. So some of, you know, hopefully what you're understanding here is that it's a, this whole process of how the body fits together is very, very complicated. And, and so for anybody that's highly reactive and you're like, I just can't get anything in and I'm just worried about anything, you know, I would challenge and say, I I'm very, very curious for these individuals, if they've had enough diagnostic workup to understand all of these different pieces that are involved in this, because understanding some of these things all really, really informs treatment order of like, oftentimes if somebody, especially if somebody has severe small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, I do actually address that before Lyme, or at least concomitantly, at least at the same time, because I want to make sure that when I'm killing Lyme, they're not going to react because I can get the toxins out because I haven't blocked the transport proteins due to somebody having SIBO. So I know that's a mouthful. I just want to clarify, because I'm a little confused, and I just want to make sure I fully understand okay. what you said. So when you mentioned glutathione, NAC, and milk thistle, were you saying yes. that those things will actually help you detox, but then they get stuck because you can't, you can't get rid of them in your liver due to SIBO? Or were you saying they actually help SIBO? I think I misunderstood what you're saying there. Yeah. So, so let me just give a 30 second, like overview on this, this deep part of detox I'm talking about, because a lot of people don't understand this part and I think it'll clarify. So phase one, phase two, break down toxins in the liver, make them more soluble so we can excrete them. What we want to do is once those toxins are broken down in the liver, we want to put them into the small intestine by via a, a connection, via it's called a canaliculi, it's basically a duct that connects the liver to the small intestine. So toxins are broken down in the liver, they go through this duct, they end up in the small intestine. And if everything goes according to plan, which is where binders come in, ideally though, what we want to do, toxins make their way into the small intestine, we get them out in the stool, we poop them out. Once they're broken down in the liver from phase one and phase two, there are transport proteins and it's the transport proteins that actually have to carry the toxins that are broken down out of the liver into the duct, into the small intestine, to the stool. So it's the transport proteins that move the toxins out of the liver that oftentimes are forgotten about in the detox pathways. So glutathione, milk thistle, those things, basically what I'm saying there is if we break down toxins from Borrelia with those types of nutrients, which work very, very, very well. But if we have a problem where the transport proteins are blocked, we don't actually take those broken down toxins. They're not able to make their way to the small intestine because they cannot be transported out of the liver. Small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, as well as other situations 
will make, will basically cause a block in those transport proteins. So when we give glutathione, it's actually accident, it's actually um, not only irrelevant, but sometimes can lead to more herxing because we mobilize these toxins. And now there are more toxins in our body because we're sending the signal detox, detox, detox. But because we can't transport those, those toxins out of the liver, they back up and then they're circulating. That was brilliant. So essentially SIBO is what prevents those communication proteins from working effectively. You address that first before doing things like a kill protocol so you can properly detox and not have an extreme Herx reaction is what you're saying. Bingo. Yep. So that's the perfect segue into Herxes because we've had various doctors tell us that Herxes can be good or Herxes can be bad. And I know that you mentioned that Herxes, in your opinion, probably are not the best and there are ways to either minimize or eliminate Herxing altogether. So can you go into a little more detail about why your view towards Herxing is that it's not positive and how you overcome the Herxheimer reaction with your patients? Yeah, I mean, I believe that from talking to other docs that, that really are pro-Herx, one of the arguments for Herx is that well, if you're herxing, we know it's working, right? So if we are herxing, we know that you're killing things, something's happening. And that's not wrong, right? That's that's true. And, and from that aspect, we could can look at herxing as a very, very good thing. Now, the problem with it and my concern with herxing is that basically we have to look and say, well, what is a herx? A herx, like I mentioned, is when we're releasing more toxins than the body is able to eliminate. And so that's inflammatory. And anytime we're sending, you know, we have all these inflammatory molecules happening, we are often breaking down tissues and we're not repairing tissues. So that's one of my problems with Herxing. And sometimes I do find that when learning new patients' bodies and everybody's different, and I do a lot of very unique prescribing, it's not the same protocol for everybody. And because of that, in learning people's bodies, sometimes there is, you know, unavoidable herxing that can happen as we're trying, trying things. And it's, you know, it, there is value in knowing how people respond. So I don't think it's wrong to say that there's, you know, there's some good about herxing. The challenge I really have professionally speaking, in my professional opinion, is when people, when we keep people there, and it's because of that inflammatory type of reaction. And, and in order to get somebody to heal, the molecules, the signaling molecules that I want to encourage the body to release are the ones that are going to say repair, not the ones that are going to say break down. So that's kind of my professional opinion about the problems with herxing. Now, as far as avoiding it, a lot does have to do with things that we just mentioned around making sure all of these pathways are open. The lymphatic system is another big, big, big system. The lymphatic system is composed of vessels throughout our body that basically are designed to remove toxins. And if the lymphatic system is not working correctly, then we can have toxin buildup and, and worse herxing from that. So some of really how, you know, to avoid herx is a combination of, you know, going slow enough, being okay if it happens a little bit, but backpedaling and trying to figure out why, if it is happening, understanding the entire body and how all of these things fit together, such as the SIBO example. So making sure that we are really opening up all those pathways and then doing things to support, but in this example, another thing that will help is doing things to support the transport proteins of toxins out of the liver, such as myrrh and choline. And I have one, you know, one, since we're, you know, trying to focus some here on stories, I have a, a patient that MCAS patient, 
Herx is on everything, you know, Herx is on, on practically water and myrrh is a very, very um, big nutrient to get those transport proteins open. And basically after being, we did a month on, on solid myrrh. That's the only thing we did and got her pretty quickly with myrrh onto what's full dosage, which is about 550 milligrams, three times a day. And for, you know, most MCAS or like strong herxing patients, they, they never get on full dose of anything, but got her on full, you know, on full, full myrrh. And now she is on full protocol of everything because we first focused on, and we also did lymphatic work with that too. So some of this is using this information to say, okay, well, if somebody's herxing, something is blocked, something's not detoxing well, going back to one of the key foundational things I, I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, which is asking why why are things blocked and then going in and, and making informed decisions from there. So Dr. Miller, what exactly does the MER do or what did it do in your patient that allowed her to get onto this full protocol after being so sensitive? So it basically what, what we call in medicine is it upregulated those transport proteins. So basically allows for the increase of those transport proteins in number. And oftentimes another thing when we upregulate a, a transport protein is we increase the connection point. We call it the affinity, but it's basically where the toxin um, communicates with the receptor, with the protein to allow it to move. So basically that's what we're doing. We're upregulating, we're allowing the receptors to work better, increase the number, increase in efficacy so that we can get those toxins out. So essentially in, in simple terms, it's allowing the body to properly detox or move these, these pathogens throughout the body. Correct. So I do want to follow up on the topic of the lymphatic system, because we do know, we've heard from a lot of other doctors in the past that the lymphatic system is really what allows these toxins that are being killed to be removed from our body. But many people are so sick and they, they have very limited movement and we do know there is no pump to the lymphatic system. So how do you work on getting the lymphatic system to get moving in your patients so they can not get stuck in a place where they're possibly having a bad Herx, even when they're severely limited in regards to movement and exercise? So one of the things, I mean, there's things that I'm sure everybody has heard of, you know, rebounding, which obviously takes some movement, dry skin brushing, alternating hot and cold. So there's some of those classic types of things work, which, which work very well. And clinically, I have not seen any results that I've been as impressed with as much as self lymphatic massage. So we actually teach um, all of our clients how to do this. And that's a huge, huge part. And it's something you can even look up online, you know, how to give yourself a self lymphatic massage. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I have people that do really well and they love the rebounder. They love the hot and cold. They love the dry skin. And, and there's definitely reason to do that. But like I said, my personal professional experience is that lymphatic massage is the best. So talk to us a little bit more about the vagal nerve. You'd mentioned earlier with Rich and a little bit with me that the vagal nerve is key also in healing from Lyme and that it does so much more than people think. So can you talk to us about what the vagal nerve does and why it's a critical component to address when healing from Lyme disease? Yeah, the vagal nerve is a cranial nerve that helps to regulate our kind of more rest and digest part of our nervous system. So uh, Borrelia can affect the vagal nerve. We know Bartonella can also attack the vagal nerve. So some of, you know, it's not just going to be Lyme. It's going to be some of these other vector-borne, tick-borne type of infections as well. 
And so when the vagal nerve is basically inflamed, like anything that's inflamed, you know, your ankle gets inflamed, your shoulder gets inflamed, doesn't work as well. And so the signaling from the vagal nerve that is telling the body to be in a more relaxed healing type of state gets impacted. So it's in some ways, you know, we talk in medicine with infections, we talk about this concept of virulence and virulence factors. And virulence factors are essentially um, things that these microorganisms secrete. And basically virulence factors will allow the microorganism to survive in our body. And so they oftentimes change our body to help make it easier for it to survive, right? So we could even look at the way that Borrelia um, affects the vagal nerve as a potential virulence factor, because essentially what it's doing is it's attacking our vagal nerve. It's putting us in the state of fight or flight, which is anti-healing and it's anti, you know, um, our immune system working well, we could call it anti-immunity. And so when we do that, when we're, we're actually sending then a nervous system signal that doesn't say heal, that says, Hey, this is okay. This Borrelia is hanging out. And so some of working with Lyme is, and working with the vagal nerve is absolutely treating the Lyme and, and killing the microorganism, getting it into, um, you know, remission. And some of it is also working with the parasympathetic nervous system, because we want to have our vagal nerve sending the signal that says repair, repair, repair. And that's going to be important to heal the Lyme. So part of getting out of the vicious cycle isn't just killing the Lyme, it's restoring the vagal tone. And a lot of that is using a lot of the mindfulness type of techniques. So to restore the vagal tone essentially means take your body out of the fight or flight mode and put it back into the rest and digest mode, which is the healing mode of the nervous system. And you said that really mindfulness techniques are the best approach you take. Are there any other things like herbs or supplements that can help that as well? Or is it solely mindfulness techniques that you feel are, are the most effective in, in addressing that? Oh, I think there's, there's a lot of herbs. Magnolia is a wonderful herb. Um, all of our HPA axis things, you mentioned threonine, like there's um, GABA is a really great one. There's a ton of different things that can really help our nervous system. And so absolutely supplements are part of it. I have been underwhelmed with the results I've seen when people are just using supplements. I've seen such better results when we combine using the signals, such as things such as GABA or Magnolia that provides to um, activating the parasympathetic, the rest, digest, heal part of our nervous system using that, but also combining it with the, the mind side of things. I really think in medicine, we need to get away from, you know, all body or all mind and really look at, um, the power of both of these parts of, of the human existence in the healing process. So give us a little more detail about the mindfulness component that you feel can be beneficial and help restoring the balance with the vagus nerve. So what are some of the techniques is, is, is that you recommend or you, you provide to your patients to help them address their mind to help heal the vagus nerve? So as far as tech, I mean, one of the most simple ways, the simplest things, gratitude exercises. So gratitude's gotten a lot of, um, a lot of press, right. And, you know, and some people get into it, but it's important to understand what gratitude's actually doing. So when we look at studies around like how people create relaxation, how people create happiness, oftentimes we do that by comparison. And many times of the, uh, we get into problems in psychology when we compare things to what we don't have. So like a common example, like when I was suffering was like really had to watch my own mind around, um, 
I, God, look at that person. They get to, they get to go for a long walk. God, I, I want, I can't go for a long walk. You know, I'm comparing myself in those things, those examples to what life would be like, because I don't have this other thing. Grat- and that basically stimulates this whole fight or flight thing. But gratitude exercises by nature, what they're doing is we are comparing what we have to a situation that is worse than ours. You know, at least I can walk. I'm so grateful I can walk. I'm so grateful I can go get myself a glass of water. You know, that gratitude by nature compares what we have to what we don't. And that actually puts ourselves into a happy state. It it releases these chemicals that are related to happiness that also are related to parasympathetic um, and, and that kind of calming response. So Dr. Mueller, I just want to emphasize what you just said, because I can't tell you how many people I've said to Rich and I, enough of this mindfulness shit. Sorry for my language, but you know, I don't want to hear it. My mind is not the problem. I am sick, but I can tell you in my personal experience and also rich as a healthy person, both of our lives have been drastically improved by doing mindfulness techniques, by having gratitude techniques and having positive mindset. So I just want to emphasize again, that your mindset and the thoughts you have can further put your, your nervous system into a fight or flight state and make you sicker or they could encourage a rest and digest state to help you heal. Is that, that's essentially what you're saying, right? 100%. I appreciate you clarifying. This is something I try to be so careful on the, word, the language I'm choosing because I don't want anybody to ever think that when we're talking about mindfulness and mindset that we're saying this is like in your head or this is like you're creating this. None of that is true. Like this is very, very real stuff. It's absolutely happening to you. And we want to cultivate every and utilize in order to heal from something that is as horrible as Borrelia. We want to use every tool at our expense. And some of that is getting your mindset in a frame where we can put your nervous system in the state to heal. And that's the point. So I do want to focus on, you did mention GABA as being a great supplement to help with the nervous system and the, and the vagus nerve. But so what a product just came out that Dr. Rawls has, and as you can tell, we're big fans of his, he has this, this sleep complete product, uh, herbal protocol and it has GABA in it with some other things like passion flower extract, lemon balm extract, GABA, L-theanine and melatonin. We've had some people in our community share with us that they really want to try it, but they've been, they've heard a lot of things about melatonin not being a great supplement and, and they're, they're nervous to take it because of that. So what are your thoughts on melatonin? Do you think it's something that is a positive supplement at a, at a good level? Or do you think people should avoid that in the Lyme community? I think it's an amazing supplement. And I'm also a big fan of Dr. Rawls. I think his work is amazing and he's done amazing things for the community. Um, and, and that it's a really well-developed product, you know, hearing, I haven't used it, but hearing like what's in that melatonin, we used to think that if you would give melatonin, it would stop your own production of melatonin, but that has been debunked in research. So we know that you can take it, you pull it, then your body will reacclimate and you'll make, make your own melatonin again. So there, the addictive quality that we used to be concerned about with melatonin is no longer there. Um, melatonin has been you know, shown to be so anti-inflammatory, especially at some of these higher doses, you know, it's been used as like a, uh, a alternative, um, not a standalone, but an alternative supportive method for cancer, even at really high doses, like 30 milligrams. But the amount of anti-inflammatory and healing effects that melatonin has, it's, I think it's a great, a great, great, great product for just about anybody with Lyme. Obviously everybody's different and obviously we have to make sure you don't perks, but I feel very, very confident about melatonin and its powers. 
So Dr. Mule, are any of these herbs dangerous in high doses or are, are any of these herbs addictive? So for example, the L-theanine, the, the melatonin, the GABA supplement, you know, are, should people, should our listeners be concerned about taking these supplements and possibly overdosing or having to worry about any pot- potential negative side effects? You know, of course, this is obviously something talk to your doctor about to, you know, be careful about any sort of medication. There are some, you know, some herb drug drug interactions always that are important to be aware of in the general scheme of safetyness. These are like way on the spectrum of safe. Uh, of course, you know, we can never make medical advice without knowing somebody's, you know, situation. So as that, with that disclaimer, you know, making sure you're talking to your doctor, but as far as safety, one of the things I love about herbal medicine is that, is that, you know, there's, there's very few side effects for most people, you know, most of the time with, with most herbal products. So the likelihood that there's going to be a problem is so much less with something like this than a pharmaceutical. So Dr. Mueller, let's get to your healing journey. So what did you do to heal from Lyme disease? Cause I mean, we know now you're back to 110% of what you were before. So what did you do to get to where you are today? Basically anything and everything, um, with an exception, I really didn't go the pharmaceutical route. So I did so many, as I mentioned at the beginning, I did so many lab tests and I found that I had heavy metals. I had mold. I had you know, all these vector borne, these tick borne illnesses, I had small intestinal bacteria overgrowth, I had a bunch of different parasites in my stool, including entamoeba histolytica, which is a pretty major one. Thyroid problems, sex hormone problems, adrenal problems, like, you know, I had a lot of the thing common things that are tested for I had. And so for me, it was a lot of being in a safe home, working through all of these different protocols, since we're talking more about Lyme, you know, on tick boot camp, um, you know, from a Lyme perspective, a lot of what I was focusing on was a variety of, of different herbs, rotating herbs, because one of the things that will happen with Lyme disease, if we stay on the same protocol is a process called sensitization, where the herbs, and it's almost like Borrelia will get like used to the herbs and don't, it won't respond to the same herbs as far as killing. So using rotation, sometimes I rotate on a weekly basis. Sometimes I rotate on a three week basis clinically, um, but rotating through those herbs and then using, um, a feeder. So basically as everybody probably knows is that with Borrelia being a spirochete, it's a spiral shape causing the Borrelia to oftentimes drive deeper into our tissues. Borrelia, one of the foods for Borrelia is hyaluronic acid, lives in our joints. Um, There's a lot of hyaluronic acid in our joints, which is why Borrelia loves the joint spaces. And so when we give hyaluronic acid in the blood at the same time as the killing protocols, it actually will almost draw the lime out, the Borrelia out, because there is its food source and there's the antimicrobial herbs at the same time. So that was a huge thing. And then the other big thing that's really important in Lyme treatment is the concept of persister cells. Persister cells are very interesting because persister cells, when when bacteria become antibiotic resistant, one of the things that happens is their DNA changes. So if a bacteria becomes um, resistant to erythromycin, you can actually see that at the genetic level. And so what typically happens if somebody has a strep infection and the strep infection, the DNA is mutated where it is resistant to erythromycin. In that case, you will look at the DNA of that streptococcus and you won't actually see any of the original DNA there, you'll only see the DNA that has been mutated and now has the code to resist 
this antibiotic. Persister cells are basically cells where the DNA has not morphed. So the DNA still looks like the original DNA, even if somebody, even if that, that Borrelia has been um, altered in order to become antibiotic resistant. So the persister cells from a killing mechanism work differently than the other cells of Borrelia. So that's another huge part of Lyme treatment is giving something like a persister cell killer. What's been the best researched um, persister cell killer is cryptolepis as an herb. And it is amazing. It's outperformed any of the pharmaceutical um, persister cell killers. So wonderful, wonderful herb. And that's, that's another thing that's really important to be in the Lyme treatment as well. So I know you did some other interesting things as well we'd like to discuss with you. For example, you tried some bee venom therapy. So talk to us about your thoughts on bee venom therapy from, I guess, both, both a safety perspective and an efficacy perspective. Yeah. So bee venom therapy comes from honeybees. So I did use this at one point I was up to 21 bee stings and I really, the symptom that I found most, um, that I, I, I noticed right away when I started the bee venom therapy was my cognition. So that was something that I felt very like from the very first treatment was an improvement in my cognitive function. And it is from a safety perspective, most people do not react from the venom from, from honeybees. They are, they react to the venom from yellow jackets or other types of bee family. So honeybees tend to be safe. Although basically the way to, like I was doing, um, bee venom, not actually from bee stings. It was extracted bee venom mixed with procaine. So it's a little bit numbing. So it's not as intense. And so using like micro microscopic amounts, the first couple of times, um, you know, injecting myself with this. And that's also what I've done for patients, micro microscopic amounts to make sure there's no sort of anaphylactic type of, you know, serious reaction. So it's still good to be extremely slow to work with a professional on this, to test, to make sure you're not anaphylactic, although, you know, you're not reactive, although most people, like I said, don't react to the honeybee. Now, the other thing to know is the one patient population from a patient perspective, I've seen this not work very well in are people that have huge like MCAS like type of sensitivities and that some like, like those types of people will just get such severe herxing essentially that it's, it's doesn't seem to work well. So I do steer, steer clear of that clinically using um, bee venom therapy in the really, really, you can be semi-reactive, but if you're like, I react to everything in microscopic doses, probably not the therapy. So, but yeah, it was a really, really um, powerful component of my treatment clinically because of the intensity of getting stung. It tends to be one of those things that it's not a first line therapy that I use. It's usually like, oh, people, you know, we need to get over a hump. We're not responding well. And it's nice to have as many different therapies in our tool bag as possible. So we have different options for people. I know you also mentioned that you tried ozone and we've heard a lot about ozone lately in various forms, such as obviously the ones we've heard the most about is through, you know, IV ozone. We've also heard about rectal ozone and vaginal ozone and, and other ways of consuming ozone to help treat their Lyme and other conditions. So what ozone did you use and how did you analyze the various ways to receive ozone and pick the one that you chose? Yeah. So I use rectal ozone. So ozone is very, very absorbable in that rectal tissue because the, the lining of that tissue is so small. 
And that was in part as a way of trying it, but also for convenience. I have seen people do very well with IV ozone. So again, it's one of those things that it's nice to, um, to have a few different options for people. I'm a little bit more nervous about vaginal ozone just because there are, it is such a powerful antimicrobial and I get nervous about, um, any negative impact on the vaginal flora. And especially I have seen that so many women that do have Lyme because of their dysregulated immune system, it's frequent that, um, chronic yeast infections, um, are something that, that I see some women with Lyme having to deal with. So I'm also, you know, cautious about that, but from an efficacy standpoint, I've seen great efficacy with rectal ozone. And I've also seen people do very, very well with IV. So there is a different differentiation in how much ozone any rectal supplement will contain. So suppositories are usually ozone and oil and different types of oil will actually house different levels of ozone. So um, hemp is the one that I tend to have tended to use because of the type of oil it is. It actually can contain a fairly large bolus of ozone. So to help really get those levels up, still not as much as an IV, but, you know, more in that direction. So before I hand this back over to Rich, I have one final question. If you had to look back at your healing journey for you, for your personal experience, and tell us the top three things, whether it's from a medicinal standpoint, a mindset standpoint, a nervous system standpoint, whatever it may be, what are the top three things that you did that you felt were the most helpful in your healing journey? So working on the whole body. So not just, you know, not just addressing the line, but re and, and absolutely addressing the line, but, but really making sure that I was addressing the whole body, working on the mindset and really working on repatterning my nervous system. And, you know, and the third thing really is just trusting myself, you know, like really, really trusting myself. And for, you know, many people, you know, like you, you included, you know, I heard for a long time, like it was medical school syndrome. It wasn't in my head, but it was like, it's not real. It's just, it's going to self-resolve. And, um, and then after that, you know, the amount of pressure that I was getting from some of my colleagues around doing pharma, you know, pharmaceutical medicine. Again, like I'm not saying that there's not a place for that by any means. It just did not feel like the route for me and, um, and really, really trusting myself on, on that as there being another way. So, I mean, that's one of the best advice, you know, I have for people as they're doing this of like, if you feel like you're still sick, you are still sick, trust yourself, keep looking for answers. There is somebody that will help you. Dr. Mila, talk to us now about the beauty of this journey, meaning what did you learn about yourself that you would not have learned had you not been on a Lyme disease journey? And how has that given you the purpose that you now have to help other people on various journeys, including the Lyme disease journeys? I really feel like the, one of the biggest things is just, you know, from a purpose standpoint is, is deep understanding. You know, if somebody told me before, like, that they were too tired to move from the bed to the bathroom or that, you know, tying their shoe is going to be the most like forward, the most progress they could do, you know, actually get done in a day. I think, especially with my athletic background, I could have gone down a road of just like, you know, there's a will problem, you're being lazy. And, and, and I could have made up a different story, but having the understanding that I have, you know, have, have gone through that, when people tell me that it really is this bad, it's really given me the framework to, to really sink into, yes, it really is that bad. 
And I do think that it helps people a lot to feel deeply understood. Um, it helps me a lot, you know, to feel deeply understood. And so I, I really do as far as really working towards some of our company's mission, which is helping to end chronic disease, having an understanding where people feel like they can come and truly get that um, empathetic support as they're going through their journey is really helping us with the overarching mission of, of ending chronic disease. So talk to us about how you built your company and how you chose the partner that you chose to build your company with. Sure. So it was, I initially had my own practice and then it was in um, 2014 when I met Dr. Miles and it was kind of one of those things initially of finding um, somebody that had, I think the, you know, the perfect compliment to, you know, to my skill set, um, both in medicine as well as in business. So, you know, finding a, a good compliment and then, you know, and then falling in love and, and Dr. Miles, my business partner is also my husband. So that, you know, of course, of course helps things. Um, but basically one of the things that we really connected on was, was this shared value, the shared value of ending chronic disease and this shared value that we see missing in a lot of practices of really combining the mind and the body. And he had, I had a much stronger background initially on the body and he had a, he had a, even though I'd been meditating and everything, he had a much stronger background in his, uh, undergrad and all of his, in his masters and all his certifications in the mind. So we spent a lot of time that first year just kind of teaching each other what we knew. And that was part of how we really developed our practice was really in bringing, bringing the mind and the body together as part of a deeper level of holistic healing. Now talk to us about your book and what was the inspiration for the book? So the book in part was, was inspired by what we're seeing in our clinic population around why people are not healing. And the book is titled Use Your Mind to Heal Your Mold and Lime. And while it's titled that, it does go into a lot of the things that we're talking about, you know, today around the body, around why people are herxing, how not to herx, how to heal holistically, supplements to use, labs to use, all of that. But one of the things that we were seeing a lot in our client population is that people were so excited to do all this work on the body. And we have such an association due to our culture of like, have a headache, take an Advil, feel better, that there's this direct, I think, association culturally of take a pill, feel better. And what we were seeing in our practice was that the people that were more motivated to do the work on the mental side, in addition to the body, you know, that were doing the gratitude exercises, doing the breathwork exercises, doing the things to put their nervous system in that healing state, were having a um, less, much less rate of recurrence doing st during stressful events of their lives. So it was really to help analyze and help give more insight in for this community on how to absolutely work with the body, but how one of our most amazing healing tools that is actually free to use is our brain. And, you know, so in the book, people, you know, readers will find that I was like very vulnerable with my own story, not just with Lyme, but with other struggles in my life as a way of illustrating, like, gosh, I have like gone through abuse. I've gone through all sorts of different types of really hard times. So this isn't just like this airy fairy, like use your mind, everything's fine. It's really rooted in research around how we can harness the power of the mind for that parasympathetic healing type of dominance we've been talking about, in addition to doing all of these great protocols and not isolating them.
So talk to us about what is the future for your business and your practice, meaning where do you envision yourself going um, now that you've completed the, the creation of your book? Uh, what's, what's, what's the future hold for you and in, in your business? Yeah, so we do have those two branches of our business. So both the clinic Medicine with Heart and the Medicine with Heart Institute, which is our training institute where we train clinicians. And some of the vision is really to take this more global. So there's so many different healing modalities all around the world and great, great clinicians all around the world. So some of what where we envision is really more of a global, uh, global network utilizing this method. We are in 22, we will be um, working on a research study validating our methodology. And so, you know, we want to tweak things like the next stage is really tweaking the met methodology, making sure from a, um, from a peer reviewed, like research study perspective, our methods been um, truly validated. And then once that's happened, as far as utilizing all of these tools, body and mind, then we'll really increase the, um, you know, the global network of getting more clinicians versed in this type of medicine so that it can spread. Can you share with us how folks would get in touch with you and or your staff for scheduling appointments to work with your practice? Yeah, so we do offer um, free health evaluation calls. Um, that is a free health, health evaluation calls are conducted by one of my team members. And basically you can either call and get an appointment um, and you just call it, call us and book an appointment right away. And that's if you go to medicinewithheart.com, that is my clinic's website. And so my phone number and everything is on there. And um, there's also a button on there to book a free call. So if you have like a lot of questions where you think you want to spend a, you know, a lot of time, um, you can schedule you know, that free call with us as well. But either way is fine. Just go to medicinewithheart.com. And then if you're interested in more, if you're a clinician interested in more in our training program, that can be found at mindbodyfunctionalmedicine.com. Now, if folks wanted to learn about you through your book, where would be the mm -hmm. best place to locate your book? My book's on Amazon. So it's super easy. So if you just go to Amazon and type in use your mind to heal your mold and lime, and that will come up that way. So now I'm going to ask you the final question we ask every guest on Tech Boot Camp. And if God forbid your husband and partner came walking into your office right after this podcast um, and he had a tech biting him on his arm, what would you recommend that he do so that he wouldn't have to go on a terrible Lyme disease journey? Yeah, it's, it's a question that actually comes up a lot because I've educated so many of my clients on what to do and they'll, you know, find it on their kids or their partner, that sort of thing, find a tick. So um, obviously get the tick off, you know, the, you do the twisting mechanism tends to not be the best mechanism using a tweezers and pulling straight out. And I do put anybody that's had a tick, I do put them on a short, like month long line protocol. So I will use, you know, our herbs, I will use crypto lepis. I don't tend to do anything crazy as far as like sending them for IV ozone or B venom, some of those more you know, bigger extreme therapies, but I will put them on a, you know, a strong herbal anti-Lyme protocol for, for three to four weeks as a way of saying, if you do have this exposure, let's just take care of it right away so that it's not going to go deeper into the system. So I, that's what I do for myself. I was rebit a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, and I didn't have any problems with that, but I did put myself on a protocol right away. Well, I did, I did promise you that was going to be my last question, but you prompted another. If someone was bitten by a tick and they wanted to work with you on that particular protocol, how would they get in touch with you 
to uh, purchase that protocol from you? Yeah, same thing. Just um, get a hold of us at medicinewithheart.com and we can get you taken care of. So no problem. Yeah, that's that's really the best contact information for us is um, just go to our website and you'll see all of our all of our great ways of getting in touch with us. And um, we do reserve um, new client appointments um, every week or so. So you can get in. And one of the great things about having a, a training institute, too, is that all of our, you know, clinicians, um, our other clinicians besides us have gone through our training. And so as we continue to, you know, grow and just continue to add on new practitioners, they have gone through our training um, since we own that other school and are vetted by us. So as we grow, you know, you can still get somebody that's trained in the method. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Diane Mueller. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Mueller, please visit our Instagram page at Medicine with Heart. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view our blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, our community, for your comments on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on Apple Podcasts, on Instagram, or on our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.